Running a business poorly and suffering for it is not glory to God. We do everything we can with excellence, but when there is times when the world and Christ clash and you take the hit, that is glory to the Lord. We must understand that we are the salt and light of the world and everything that that entails and how when we walk around, we are impacting the world for Jesus. We are witnesses. Some of us will be martyrs in some way, shape or form, perhaps in one way, all of us will be martyrs. But I wanted to talk a little bit about this concept of giving up things for the Lord. I was uh, doing a wedding last weekend, not this one that we just did. I did a wedding there too, but the weekend before. Uh, it was an outside wedding and it was 107. Now, that's pretty rough, pretty rough. We were at the reception afterwards, and I was talking with a friend of mine. Her and her husband were sitting there with me, and I asked what they had been up to, and she said, well, as you know, we're moving to Rwanda. Now, Rwanda has become famous for its refugees and the genocide that had occurred there. Well, I said, well, what are you going there for? She said, well, we're going there largely as a mission. We're going to be teaching in some of the schools, and... Um, we're going with some family members and they're doing some business work as Rwanda redevelops. She said, but there's one element that's really uncomfortable for me. She said, when we go over there, the amount we're going to be paid by the school is not quite enough to cover all the expenses. So we were asked to raise support. She said, Lance, I absolutely hate asking for money. I'm very uncomfortable with it. It feels awkward. It doesn't feel right. I know people, they don't, they don't want to hear that kind of stuff. And I said, hey, I am right there with you. I hate talking about money. I never seem to talk about it in the pulpit, maybe to a fault. I said, I understand going on a mission trip and trying to send out that letter. Let's be honest. When you receive that letter, it's a drag, right? You receive that letter, it's a drag. Why? Because you immediately feel guilt. My friends going on a mission trip, and if I was a good Christian, I'd give to them, but I don't want to give to them. I don't have the money to give to them, so I feel bad. And we feel weird when we get these letters. And she said, I don't want to be that person. I said, I know, I don't want to be that person either. And then as I was talking, something came into my mind. And I began to share it with her, and I said this. I said, do you realize that the majority of money that we spend in this world, we can't remember where it went? Just for a moment here, think back five years. What have you purchased in the last five years? Now, normally, you'll only think of large ticket items, yeah? You'll think of, okay, well, I bought a jet ski. Okay, I bought a jet ski, then I rode it for a little while, it broke down, I had to put some more money in it, finally it doesn't work too much, so now it's in the garage. Or I bought the latest laptop because technology changed on me, and I found out that it changed on me again after a year. But if we started getting into a conversation about how we have invested in the kingdom of God, you'll remember back 10, 15, 20, 30 years to missionaries you've invested in, to children's programs you've paid for, to scholarships that you've helped people with. You will remember for decades what you invested eternally. I said to this gal, I know you don't want to write the letter. I get that. But it's possible that the discomfort you create by sending a letter is an opportunity for God to work on our hearts, challenge us with something. And then 
if indeed we do support you in that way through sacrifice, we will carry that as a joy for the rest of our lives. We will always remember back. I remember when we gave or we supported that child through Compassion International. Or I remember when, and when you look back through your checkbook about stuff that mattered, it was only because you received that letter and got uncomfortable that you have something to be joyful about. I said, is it possible that it's a good thing that we all wrestle and we begin to, whether we don't want to or not, begin to invest in something that transforms the world? Maybe we need to look at it like that. So I ask you this morning, not just are you giving to something that matters. That's not really the point. The point is, are you living for something that matters? We do the same process last five years. What have you spent your time in? How have you lived your life? Because you're only going to be able to log the eternal stuff. Have you been investing into a ministry? Have you been ministering to your neighbor? Have you been loving on other people? Have you made sure that your coworkers know that you are a believer and that you are a help if they need you? If that has been you, well done. That's excellent. That is what our job is. That's what we do. That's what salt and light means. Do you realize that you're a walking billboard for Christ, whether you like it or not? Yeah? Now, mine, because I'm a bit more visible as a guy under a spotlight, I work out all the time at the gym, right? I go to the gym. That's not why I work out at the gym. But I go to the gym Four days a week, and I walk into Cal Family Fitness, and I have to go incognito, right? So I always wear a hat backwards, right? Totally disturbs everybody that sees me. It makes me look like I'm 14 years old, right? I wear this hat backwards because the only way I'm recognized from a distance is my hair. My hair is a huge calling card. Everybody can see it from a mile away. The minute I cover it up, I become invisible. Nobody has any idea who I am, including my wife. She has no idea. Never ask me to do anything. It's great. Fantastic. I hide in my house sometimes with my hat. Now, as I'm sitting there working out in the gym, every once in a while, someone sees through that and they stop me right in the middle of a rep and they go, hey, great job on Revelation. And they walk on and I'm like, I didn't even know they went to our church. Oh my gosh. I didn't even know I knew that person. And they're constantly watching me. I did not know. Now, every day of our lives, someone is watching. And so the fill in the blank in front of you is a challenge as much to me as it is to you. What does the world think of Jesus when they look at you? They're going to make up some determination. What does the world think of Jesus when they look at you? Do they see Jesus is nice? Do they see Jesus cuts them off in traffic? What do they see? Right? They're going to see something when they look at you, when they examine your life I would hope that the majority of the life is blessing because that's what Jesus did when he was here. He invested in people, loved on people, cared for people. Is that what we are about? Now, does he stand for truth? Does he do harsh things? Yes. And in times those are called for. But what does the world see? And what does the world think of Jesus when they look at you? Let's get into the book of Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, page 872 
in the Bibles that were handed to you. If you're brand new to this, you just drop your Bible all the way to the right. It's actually the last book in the Bible. That makes it easier. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to read it here, but let me give you a couple prep issues to read Revelation a little easier. We're going to wrestle with a big decision today. Is this stuff literal or is this stuff symbolic? Right? We're going to talk about the two witnesses, these guys that come down um, onto the earth. They begin to preach. They can do extraordinary plagues and miracles and fire comes out of their mouth. And we really wrestle with, are these real guys or is this merely symbolic? And there's something that we wrestle with in the Bible all the time about things being literal or symbolic. As a matter of fact, the Bible is a culmination of really weird stories. There's really unusual things, water splitting in two. Yeah, fire coming from heaven, things like this. Does this really happen? As a matter of fact, some of them are so bizarre that a lot of people think that the whole majority of the Bible is symbolic. That could never happen. That's just too weird. Let me remind you of something. If you go back to the beginning of the Jews, we go back to Abraham. We're at least shooting back, what, six, eight thousand years. Yeah, you go back beyond that. The Bible actually starts at Adam and Eve. How far beyond them it goes, we don't know. We're guessing. But in all those thousands upon thousands of years, we only have a small collection of books. Don't you think that the only stuff that gets written down is probably pretty weird? They're not going to write down the boring, the mundane, the average. No. Through all those years, this is all we got? Do you realize that in between these extraordinary events, perhaps could be a thousand years of nothingness? So no, it's not like this was happening all the time and suddenly it just stopped. No, this stuff just happens. Let me give you an example about a story that many people could say, oh, it's all symbolic, yet we all take it very literal. David and Goliath. Is it true that truly a young Jewish man goes up against a giant, meaning a literal giant? He's nine feet tall. He's trained in the art of killing people. Is it true that a young shepherd boy came up against him, stepped out, threw a sling, nailed him in the forehead and killed him? Is that true? We all take it as fact. But do you understand the symbolic nature of that? Do you all of a sudden realize and go, wait a second. Oh, it's all the giants that we face in our life and we're all feel ill-equipped and we're too small to face the big things in life. But with the power of the Holy Spirit and with the Lord, we can take out giants, right? So just because it's symbolic, does that mean it's not literal? No. I don't believe it always has to be an either or. I think a lot of times it can be an and. Why? Because I think that God empowered a young shepherd boy to kill a giant in real life so that we might learn a bigger lesson. Don't you think God orchestrates this stuff on purpose? Don't you think, of course, it's going to be symbolic? So all I'm saying is that just because something can be highly symbolic does not mean that it's not literal. Sometimes it is. And sometimes it isn't. So now then, as we begin and read together, where are we at in this story? Well, as you know, and those of you that are brand new, one of Jesus' best friends, while he was here in this world, John the disciple, or we know him as John the apostle, had been exiled by the Roman Empire out onto a rocky island for preaching about Jesus. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be a witness. Indeed, he's seen all his friends, every one of the disciples, be martyred. Here he is alone. He writes this book down in A.D. 90. And he sees visions. 
of heaven. Visions of how the world's going to end. Visions about what's really going on. How God is really on his throne. How the enemy is really trying to attack. What sorts of things are going to come up in the end times to deceive God's people, if that is possible. He sees vignettes. They seem to overlap. They're telling you different segments of what's going to happen. We're trying to put these things in order and slide them around and figure out where things fit. And there's three major visions that occur. Seven seals are broken off a scroll that reveal new information. We went through those. Then seven angels step forward and blow seven trumpets. We've already seen six. The seventh is yet to hit. We are in the pause in between those two, kind of like a parenthesis where we learn more info. Eventually, there will be four bowls poured out of wrath upon the earth. That is to come. So join with me now in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. It might help if I turn there. Here we go. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. John speaking said, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths, devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went to the he- they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open our hearts to receive your word today? That Holy Spirit, by your amazing power, would you show us what we must know to change? Would you transform us by the word of God? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's take it apart. What do we got? He said, I was given a... Read like a measuring rod. As a matter of fact, the Greek words that go in there is actually very descriptive. It means a certain read and a certain size. And what happened was in the Jordan Valley, 
There were enormous large, meaning 6 to 20 feet, long reeds that are like bamboo. They're hollow on the inside. They're very lightweight, but they're very rigid. And what that does is it makes a very practical yardstick. When you cut it down and you need to go around and measure stuff, you need something that's straight. You need something that's not heavy because the one that he's getting right here is nine feet tall. This is a big, huge stick. How do we know that? Because it actually describes it in cubits. A cubit is from the tip of your finger to your elbow. Obviously, cubits change depending on how tall you are, right? But in general, they begin to figure out a size, and this is about a nine-foot-tall reed. It's just very practical the way they would measure stuff. And so he gets a reed like a measuring rod, and he was told to go and measure what? The temple of God and the altar. Now, he's not the first one. There's three other Old Testament prophets that were told to measure stuff. Why are you running around measuring things? Who cares? Okay, so you measured it. Yay, it's 2,000 cubits. Why do we care? Measuring is also symbolic of something. You only measure what you own. Yeah? For example, if someone walks into your house and starts measuring your couch, you get awe. You feel weird about that. Why are you measuring my couch? Why are you measuring my stuff? Right? Because it appears that if they measure it, they're going to... Do something with it, right? They're going to take it. It's got it. You don't measure stuff that's not yours unless you intend on doing something with it. It's a preparation idea of ownership. So now he's going to measure what? The temple of God and the altar. We've already seen a massive altar in heaven, but what is this temple? Do you understand why this causes some problems? When did I say that this book was written? A.D. 90. When did the temple get destroyed? A.D. 70, 20 years before John wrote this down. So what temple exactly are we measuring? You can't measure a temple that's not there. So we have two or three choices, right? The first choice is that our data is wrong. As a matter of fact, this is one of the main reasons why a lot of people believe that this book was written by John prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So they argue for an early date. I still don't believe that. I don't think there's enough evidence there. So if it's not that temple, maybe it's just a heavenly picture of the temple. So John is just symbolically to measure it and go, hey, God's doing something with his people. And it really kind of stands for the church or for Israel or whatever. That's very possible. Or combining this with some other prophecies in Daniel and books like that, is it possible that in the end times the temple will be rebuilt? And if the temple is rebuilt, then you can measure it. Well, that'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? Do you all know where the temple used to stand in Jerusalem? Everybody familiar with the dome on the rock where you see that that shiny dome and all the pictures? Do you understand there's a massive argument that's gone on for a really, really long time that the Palestinians against the Israelis over who owns that territory? Almost all of it is an argument over the temple. The Jews want to rebuild the temple, but they have to rebuild it on the temple mount. They have a specific place. They have a specific size. They have very specific measurements that they must follow. Somebody sitting in their spot, in their opinion. Therefore, they can't do it. What that does is it stops them from having a temple. What it does is it stops them from having the animal sacrifice that atones for sin. And it has caused a huge amount of difficulty for the Jewish people. It is believed by many that in the end times, the Jews will reclaim the territory, rebuild the temple, 
And that will be a part of this end time setting. Is that what John is measuring? I don't know, but it's very likely. It says that he was told to go and measure the temple of God and the altar and to count the worshipers there. In other words, God knows who are his. He said, but exclude the outer court, meaning the Gentile court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles and they're going to trample on the holy city for 42 months. It's a lot packed in there. What do you mean the outer court? Does everybody remember how the temple was designed? It has four courts. The outer court, which consists of about 26 acres in the large temple, is the Gentile court. That means if you're not a full Jew, but you want to go worship the God of the Jews, you're allowed to walk in that far and no further. There are a series of plaques all over the wall. You can't cross through the doorway because there are warnings under penalty of death. You cannot get any closer. The next court in is the court of the women. Israeli women were allowed to cross through beyond what the Gentiles could do, and they could worship their God there. Beyond that was the Israel, Israel, I can't even say it, the Israelite court where the men could go and do their worship. Then there was the place that only the priests could go. That included the holy place and the holy of holies and things like that. Now, when he's measuring, he said, I want you to cut out the outer court, the Gentile court. And you go, hey, wait a second, I'm a Gentile. That's offensive. In the book of Revelation, when it refers to Gentiles many times and most often, it is referring to unbelievers. It's not referring to believing Gentiles. They end up being included in the family of God. So they're talked about a little bit differently. So when it refers to Gentiles, it's not just talking about, it's not talking about us if we are believers. It's talking about unbelievers. He said, the Gentiles will trample on the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. You're going to hear that over and over and over again. Three and a half years, three and a half years, over and over. Why? Well, we've been told through Daniel's 70th week and a bunch of other prophecies, that in the end times, there is a period of tribulation for seven years. You break seven and a half, what do you got? Two pieces of three and a half years. So now we have the Gentiles will take control of the temple, defile it, and run the show for three and a half years. We're going to assume that's the back half of the tribulation. When they violate a covenant with Israel and they turn everything upside down, which we'll talk about later. This idea of three and a half years was logged in John's mind rather significantly. Why? Because before he was alive, a significant event happened to the temple. And what was that? A terrible leader for the Roman Empire by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV stormed in, took over the temple, and desecrated it. He sacrificed unclean animals on the altar and completely destroyed everything and took charge of it. As a matter of fact, there was an uprising against it by a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus said, no more. He was a zealot. He got a bunch of his guys together and said, we're going to fight this. We're getting the temple back. If you take our temple away, we can't worship properly. We will not stand for it. They cannot go as a full army of Jews to fight the Roman Empire. So they went into guerrilla warfare. 
They began to fight and attack from the sides and be subtle and move around and be sly. It was such a significant uprising. They literally rooted out Antiochus, got him out of the temple, restored the temple, replenished it, and blessed it all over again and restored worship. That's Hanukkah. You ever wonder what Hanukkah is all about? You always go there lighting a bunch of lights. It's that. We got our temple back. We always think, oh, it's just the alternative to Christmas. No. Very important. They got their temple back. How long do you think Antiochus and his guys had access to the temple? Three and a half years. You think that John didn't know that? He hears it again and went, what? We're doing this again? History's repeating itself? Come on. They're going to defile our temple all over again. We finally get it back. We finally get it back up and running and they ruin it. It's exactly what's going to happen. It moves on. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days. How long is 1,260 days? Three and a half years. Are we all following this? Seems to talk about it a lot. They will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, why do you wear sackcloth? What is it? It's a black goat hair or camel hair you wear internally, so it's itchy on your skin. It's gross looking. It's a sign of mourning and sadness. So why are they putting it on? Because they're prophets. Prophets would put on and say something's wrong with the world. We have not followed the Lord. They're going to come out and prophesy. What three and a half years are they going to prophesy? Well, it's very likely the first. Because they're going to go out and tear out the whole world and say, Hey, we are not doing what God asked us to do. Then they need to get out of the way so the Gentiles can trample on the city. So it's likely they're going to be in the first half. And the Gentiles will have it for the second half. But who are these guys? It says these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, that didn't help. What are those? Well, it's a specific reference to an Old Testament prophet. Zechariah chapter 3 and 4 says very clearly there were two men that were to lead Israel from exile back into the land, restore the temple, restore the city, And bring about true worship once again. These men that were going to lead the revival were two men. Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. These two guys stood for restoration. So all the Jews knew those guys that they were the olive the olive trees and the lampstands. In other words, the Holy Spirit's power like oil poured into them and they lit up the world. In the same way, these two guys will be empowered by the Holy Spirit and will stand up and lead to revival and restoration. All right. But who are they? Are they symbolic? Are they real? We got a couple choices. Let's divide it down the middle. Real, not real. Okay? Because honestly, there are tremendous arguments on both sides. I have read essays and commentaries over and over and over, battling back and forth as to whether or not they're legit and real. I'm going to show my cards early and tell you I think they're real for a couple different reasons. One is it keeps saying, and these men, period, and then it says they died and came back to life, the whole resurrection process. It just seems to fit the fact that people can see them and are terrified when they come back to life. I think they're real. However... 
there is an argument that's very well said that in Revelation there's a pattern. The pattern is that two things keep getting heralded as the way that God will restore the world. The word of God and the testimony of his saints. The word of God and the testimony of his saints. It's a couplet and it happens over and over and over. Is it possible that the two witnesses in the end will be the word of God and the testimony of the saints? There are saints there. The word of God is going to tear things apart. And that is what's truly going to do the damage. Is that possible? Yes. Now, if it's not, here are our choices. A lot of people try to guess who these literal guys are. And remember, we always tend to guess people that already have a name in the Bible. We can't just make up new names. So we always think that it's somebody. The first guess is Elijah and Enoch. Why? What do they have in common? They didn't die. Neither one of them ever died. You go, what? There are only two men in the whole Bible that never died. It says Enoch walked with God and then there was a whirlwind and he was no more. God took him up. He never died a physical death. He was caught up into heaven. Elijah never died. He was taken up in a chariot of fire. When he's walking with his protege, Elisha, they're walking through and all of a sudden they're separated and a huge chariot comes down full of fire and Elijah is, gets in it and he goes up to heaven and he never dies a physical death either. So if you have two guys in the Bible that never died, now you have two guys coming back, you go, hey, two, two, they fit in the hole, yay, right? It's got to be those guys. Well, maybe. A better guess is Elijah and Moses. You go, Moses, that guy died. Well, do you remember the part in the New Testament that says that, what, they argued over the body of Moses and nobody knows where it's at? Do you remember that? Weird story. You're like, what? Michael's arguing with Lucifer over the body of Moses and we don't know where it's buried. And does it really matter if he died? What, like he can't come back? Anybody remember what happened when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration? two guys showed up. Who were they? Moses and Elijah. They've already shown up before together. They're already a duo, right? They practice all their songs and dance steps. They know each other back and forth, right? So they've already come once together. So it's very likely they could return together. Many people cite and they go, well, an Old Testament passage says before the Lord returns, Elijah will come again. And all the Jews were waiting for Elijah. The only problem with that is Jesus said, yeah, and it was John the Baptist. You go, oh, okay, well, let's take that one out. So why did they think it's Moses and Elijah? Do you remember what they do? They do things like plagues on the earth. What did Moses do? Plagues on the earth. Fire comes out of their mouth to consume people. If this is real and legit, that's freaky. Yeah? All of a sudden you just go, and all of a sudden all this fire fires out of your mouth and just kills people. You go, no way. Nobody's going to do that. That's never happened. You sure? For uh, 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah heard via the Lord about an interesting situation. There was a bad king by the name of Ahaziah. Ahaziah was not walking with the Lord, but he did happen to be walking on the second story of his house. He fell through the latticework and was injured. I find that funny. As he broke through the latticework, his injuries were so severe that it was possible that he was going to die from his injuries. He wanted to know if he was going to die. So he sends out his crew to go seek a pagan god, Baal, to see whether or not he was going to die from his injuries. You don't do that in Israel. 
Elijah heard about it. He steps out as they're walking to go consult the bad guys. Elijah steps out from the forest. Hello. You're like, hi, weird, creepy guy from the forest. And he says, I will tell you this. Is there no God in Israel that you consult other gods? You tell your king he's going to die from his injuries. They're like, okay, we'll go do that. They go back and tell the king. And the king's like, what do you look like? They're like, I don't know. He's kind of freaky looking. He wore all this weird, like camel's hair stuff. And he was kind of odd. And it's Elijah. I knew it. Can't stand that guy. Sends out a group of 50 with a captain, soldiers to go arrest Elijah. They go to find out where he's at. He's sitting up on a little hill in a barca lounger or something. He's sitting up there, right? And he's, and he's tapping his fingers like this. Why? I don't know. And as he's sitting there, they come up and they say, Elijah, the king has said, you must come back with us. He said, no, I do not have to. And they said, yes, you do under order of the king. He said, if I'm a man of God, fire will come out of the sky and burn you up. Oh, look, here it comes. Wham! Killed them all. Well, the only thing to do in a situation like that is to send another 50. So he sends another 50 out. You must come with us on order of the king. No, I don't. If I'm a man of God, fire is going to come down from the sky and burn you alive. Ah, boom, burned them all up. So he sends another 50. Not an intelligent king. When the final 50 show up, the captain falls on his knees and begs him, Elijah, we're just doing our job. I don't want to arrest you. Please come with us. And Elijah goes, okay. I just wanted someone to say, please. He goes up and talks with the king and he said, you're going to die. Just thought I'd let you know that. All right. Now, the point is, is that in Elijah's life, he has literally had fire come and burn people up literally that oppose him. So it's not all that unusual if he does it again. As a matter of fact, it says they can shut up the sky so it won't rain. What did Elijah do? It says right there in the book of James, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for three years. He can shut the sky down. It's not like it hasn't happened before. Could it be literal? Absolutely. They've done it before. So why Moses and Elijah? Because it is a supreme prophet and a supreme lawgiver. You have the law and the prophets in both those two men. Now, does it have to be them? No. It could be two different people. I mean, it could be Rick and Steve. Okay, I have no idea. It doesn't have to be Elijah and Moses. We know they're patterned after Elijah and Moses. But it could be two new witnesses that stand up. But we do know that there's a pattern, and it's very possible. Let's move on. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Just a side note, God said to Jeremiah, through the word of God, I will make a fire come out of your mouth and it will devour all your enemies. Could it be symbolic? Yeah, it could. That's also has a history. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, which is three and a half years. And they have power to turn the waters to blood. Oh, that sounds like Moses. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony... The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, overpower them, and kill them. This is your first reference to the Antichrist. 
the first of 36. We're going to hear about this guy a lot. We will describe him in later sermons. But I want you to understand, we make a lot about the beast, the beast, the beast. The word is actually just animal. So you could literally go the animal that comes out of the abyss, the creature that comes out of the abyss. It's a man, but he's demonic in nature. That's why he comes out of the abyss. That's a reference. Now, it says when they finish their testimony, he's going to overpower them and kill them. Remember, nobody else could take them out. Fire would come out of their mouths and consume them. He's the only one that could shut them down. That's going to gain him power and control and confidence with people. Because, oh my gosh, we couldn't do it. Now this guy shows up and he does it. Why was he allowed to do it? Because their time was over. Let me, let me, let me share something very encouraging. No matter how much people tried to kill them, they couldn't kill them until their time was up. Right? As a matter of fact, we know God has such access to the control of life and death that in prior passages, we learn that people even tried to commit suicide and couldn't die because God wouldn't let them. Here's my encouragement to you. Until your usefulness is done, no one can touch you. No one can harm you. There is nothing that man can do. There's nothing that Satan and his forces can do to harm you until Jesus says, all right, guys, let's hit the showers. Let's go. Right? It's encouraging. The beast that comes up from the abyss will overpower them and kill them. And their, body will, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city. What's the great city? Jerusalem, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, which means immorality and bondage. In other words, they were supposed to be the light on a hill that shines the Messiah. That was rejected. They have departed from what God wished. Where also their Lord was crucified. We know that's Jerusalem because Jesus died there. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on the bodies and refuse them burial. In the Middle East, that's an insult. You always let your people get buried. Somehow, cremated, moved, buried, whatever it is, do not leave their body open to humiliation. For three and a half days, they're going to leave them out and it says the whole world's going to see them. Now, back in the old days, you kind of went, how's that going to be possible? Doesn't it seem pretty obvious now? You got video cameras and internet stuff to where it's streaming live at all times. So you have complete 100% global access to watching these people. That was never the, that was never the way it was. So people would kind of go, well, how's the whole earth going to see them? Well, interesting. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, meaning, yay, they're dead, and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. So they're going to make it what? An unholiday. It's not holy. So there's this huge, I'm so glad those guys are gone. They were tormenting. All they talked about was bad news. All they talked about was God's angry with something. All they talked about was negativity. I'm so sick of those guys. They're stopping things. They're causing famines. They're wrecking things. Nobody likes these guys. Just kill them and get them out of here. Well, the Antichrist does just that. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. That is the same word that is used in Genesis for creating Adam. Can you imagine this scene? And they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. 
Now that's going to scare everybody. Dead bodies, watching them live streaming, three and a half days, they stand up. Wow. If this is literal, you guys, this is extraordinary. They would stand up, shake it off, look at each other, high five. No, they didn't do that. <laughs> then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, meaning your time is done. Let's go, guys. They went up to heaven in a cloud. There's the cloud again. While their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. Now, that sounds an awful, lot, an awful lot like when Jesus died on the cross. Darkness descended on the land. There was a massive what? Earthquake. It split the altar in two. So here's our challenge. Are we living for Christ? Are we ever going to mature to the place where dying for the Lord not only seems possible, but desirable? What do I mean? I mean, as we look back on our lives, when are we going to get so sick of the way that we're doing things that we want to do something significant for the kingdom of God? And there is nothing more significant than having a big, huge stamp that says, I gave everything to Jesus. Do you understand that there were generations in the past that sought to die for the Lord because they just wanted their lives to finally matter and to do something useful? Will we ever mature to that place? Will there be a time where we learn what it is to long for heaven? Where we want to get out of here? Are we too comfortable here? As you walk around and are a witness, a testimony, may we give our lives as living sacrifices. Not all of us can die for the Lord. Not all of us will. It's very possible no one in this room will die for the Lord. Very possible, very probable. Then the only other great thing that we can do is to live for the Lord. Every day of our lives. I find that to be far more difficult. What we must do is to say, I am a witness. Am I a good one? So I throw the challenge to you as has been presented to me. What does the world say when they look at you? They look at these guys. They can't stand them. But when they died, they knew God was around. There was no mistaking. When you stop working at the place where you work, does anyone even know that Jesus walked out the door? Or is it just another coworker? I think this stuff is very practical, very applicable. So let's consider our hearts and our lives. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Lord, we give our lives to you now and we ask that you would guide us. We ask that you would give us insight as to how to live a life that is glorifying to you. That Lord, that you would show us ways in which we might be the salt and light that you designed us to be. 
I pray now, Father, that as these witnesses stood for you, though we may not be as dramatic, though we may not have the miracles, Lord, that we would step forward and we would stand tall for you, that we would love you so desperately that there's no way everyone can see that. Oh, God, make us your children and the men and women for this generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.